Do you want the title? The first one I'm going to read. I'm writing this from my mother's apartment. It's called Orange. All I could think about was being written into her life story. She made up a story about What was the inspiration for the story? My story is called Cigarettes. What was the genesis? I used to be almost dependent on voice. I want to talk to you. (laughs) And the conversation starts. Hello, and welcome to Off the Page a podcast featuring the fiction, poetry, and nonfiction of the Stanford writing community. In each episode, a writer will read from their work and engage in a craft conversation with me. I'm Mark Lebowski, Jones Lecturer in the Creative Writing Program. On this episode of Off the Page, Amina Ahmad reads an excerpt from her new novel, The Return of Faraz Ali. Amina Ahmad is a graduate of the Iowa Writers Workshop. She received a Stegner Fellowship, a Pushcart Prize, and a Rona Jaffe Foundation Writer's Award. Her short fiction has appeared in One Story, The Southern Review, Ecotone, and elsewhere. She is also the author of a play, The Dishonored. The Return of Faraz Ali is out now from Riverhead Books. In this chapter, the protagonist, Faraz Ali, is heading back to the Red Light District, which is located in the old city of Lahore, to attend the crime scene that he's been summoned to cover up. At this moment, at the beginning of the chapter, he doesn't actually know that he is going to cover up the crime that he eventually has to cover up. Chapter 5 The driver from Thibi was a shabby-looking sergeant called George his gap-toothed smile making him seem even shabbier. Faraz could smell the trace of alcohol on his breath when he got into the car, and George leaned toward him and said, We have to make a stop at the Mahola first, sir. I'm not sure if they told you about the woman. What woman, Faraz said. George looked sheepish. The dead one? he asked hopefully. She was in some kind of accident, Faraz said. The man tilted his head. Accident? You might say that, I suppose. What would you call it, Faraz asked. George shrugged apologetically. I don't know much, sir. I believe the sub-inspector is waiting to brief you at the scene. George was sharp, he realized, because he said no more and put on the radio. News of the planned inauguration of a school by the president's daughter. A resignation from the Pakistan cricket board. Nothing about last night. No mention of riots, arrests. Officially, it had been a slow night. The mall, Circular Road, still seemed deserted. It wasn't until they got close to the inner city that the streets became crowded with traffic. Bullock carts laden with bulging sacks, donkeys braying as their drivers whipped them, a stream of men on bicycles vanishing into the morning fog. Business as usual, George said as the car crept along behind a crowd of carts and tangas. You're new to this part of the city, sir, the walled city? Faraz nodded. It's always slow heading towards Hiramandi Chalk, even early, George said. It's all right. It's not as if this woman's going anywhere, Faraz said. In the Mahola, sir, anything's possible, George said. At Thranam Chalk by the cinema, a poster of the latest Shabnam Wahid movie loomed. Wahid's eyes and Shabnam's pink lips just visible in the mist like a broken face in the sky. When they turned into Hiramandi Bazaar, he scoured the doorways, the open apartment windows above the stores, searching for something, anything he might recognize, his body stiffening in anticipation. 
but the bazaar looked familiar only in that it looked like most others in the city. He tried to temper his disappointment. He'd always known he'd need another way to find his people. His memories, which were vague, fragments at best, wouldn't lead him to them. They passed a line of shops that sold handmade instruments, dolkies, tablas, sitars, and then a stretch of function rooms where audiences came for dance, song, and Faraz knew the other things you could buy here. This is where everything happens, George said. The heart of Shahi Mahala. Faraz scoffed. This is the royal neighborhood, he said. George glanced at him. I know it doesn't look like much, sir, but it has a long history. Some of the artists who work here, their families go back generations, back to the time of the emperors. Artists, Faraz said. You mean Gundries. They prefer to call themselves the wives, courtesans, sir. What do you think they are, George? George paused. I think, he said, smiling cautiously, they give a lot for whatever it is they get in return, sir. He gestured at the window. Over in that direction is Thibi Gully, where the station is. Thibi is where, let's just say, the working women don't know as much about music and dance as some of the countries here. They sell one thing only. The buildings on either side of the road, four stories high, cast shadows over the narrow street. An ancient, ornate wooden door gaped forlorn. The balcony of one house, lined with elegant arches worked into the stone, was shattered in places, its walls thick with grime. A banner hung from one side of the street to the other. On it was a picture of a heavy man, his expression severe, and the words, Congratulations to President Ayub and Pakistan on a decade of development. Proud of Pakistan. George gestured to a doorway where a constable stood smoking a cigarette. There, that's it. He parked by a butcher's stall. The mist drifted past the constable and in through the open windows of the building, and Faraz imagined it streaming through the rooms, circling the dead woman. Then, from somewhere, he remembered. A street corner, a pile of bricks. Strings of Sarahs hanging from a stool, golden and glittering, then a Sarah around his neck tickling his chin. His sister, Rosina, she was dressing him up as a groom, marrying him to a goat. Shall we go, sir, George asked. The sub-inspector's already here. Faraz didn't move. The memory had come so suddenly, so distinctly, not a shadow of a memory like most of them, and he was desperate not to let it evaporate. He had to concentrate to hold it in his mind's eye. You're probably tired, sir. We'll be very quick, George said, coming around to open the door for him. You know what the dead are like. He smiled a little more broadly. They wait for no one. George, did you even offer the inspector some breakfast? A uniformed man pulled himself away from a cluster of men in front of a shuttered stall nearby and sauntered over, adjusting his cap. Sub-inspector, Faraz said. Shaka, sir, he said, as if Faraz ought to have heard of him. They're up early, Faraz said, nodding at the pimps at the stall. Shaka grinned. Hard-working men, sir, he said. I don't think they've been to bed yet. He jammed his hands into his pockets. I'm sorry we had to get you here so early, sir. We were all hoping for a little break after last night. Somehow, the sub-inspector had found time to shave. Faintly on the right side of his face, 
Raz could make out a darker patch of skin, a bruise. The work of one of the rioters, perhaps? But the countries around here will get themselves into trouble no matter who's in charge of the government, Shulkar said. Shall we? Raz said. Sir, Shulkar nodded. He looked up at one of the windows. Third floor. The constable moved aside to let Faraz by, and there it was again, a familiarity in the way he readied himself to duck inside the doorway in his reach for the wall, already knowing there would be no handrail. He drew back, slowing himself down. He looked around for the others. George was trotting back toward the car, which could not be left unattended here, and the constable was whispering something into Shaka's ear, Shaka's face impassive until he realised Faraz was looking at him. Then he smiled. Be right with you, sir. The steps on the dark spiral staircase were so narrow, there was barely enough room for his boot. He climbed slowly, uncertain of his footing in the dark, passing the closed doors of other apartments. From above, someone thrust open a door and it hit the wall with a bang. Light leapt into the stairway. Finally, you decided to show up. Faraz looked up into the light. He could just make out the outline of a woman, her long hair hanging loose around her face. Come on then, Shaka, let's see you do it. Come and get this cleaned up like you always do. Her voice was shrill, breaking. A boy, a teenager, came to stand next to her. He leaned forward and looked down into the stairwell at Faraz. He opened his mouth to speak, then froze. Inside, Amma, inside, he said, pulling the woman's arm back toward the open door. Get off me, you bastard. Faraz hurried up, breathless. She stared at him, her face blotchy, her lip trembling. She looked about to speak, but then she slammed the door shut, leaving him with the boy. He was tall, thin, maybe 15 years old. His hair was long, a choppy fringe falling into his eyes. He looked as if he hadn't slept, as if he never slept. Up there, the boy said gesturing to another flight of stairs. There was a great wash of blood on the wall. It was thick and wide like a gash you could step into, and above it bright splatters radiating outward. She must have been standing against the wall when it happened. She was small. She had stumbled to the left before sliding down, leaving a column of blood on the white paint. The spray above it indicated a different wound. More than one shot had been fired. Perhaps more than one person had been injured. White sheets spread across the floor for the girls to dance on were marked with bloody footprints, and there were thick patches of blood on the sheets, which suggested the body had been dragged around or moved at intervals from place to place. The sheets were littered with five rupee notes. A dolky lay against the far wall, tucked into a corner. The boy had come up behind him. Who are you? Faraz asked. Irfan, I'm her brother. He gestured to a door on the other side of the room. Wait here, Faraz said, crossing the room. Inside was a carved double bed, too big for the room. In the middle lay the body, covered by a blood-soaked sheet. A child's body. For so long there had been nothing to it, this work. Just the spectacle of the scene. In the village where he'd been raised and later returned to work as a rural policeman, bones in dried-up wells, bodies blistered under the sun had seemed as natural as the bloom on the fields, 
he'd learned quickly everything, everyone had to die one way or another. No one, no animal, no man chose how or when. The world was a place of violence, of waste. But the arrival of the baby, the rhythm of Nazia's breath so precious had shifted things. Yes, everything had to die, but now he couldn't help but think, not yet, not yet. He stood over the figure for a moment. You are much too small, he thought. His emotion shamed him, yet there was relief in feeling something too. He lifted the sheet. She was about 12 years old, thin, 90 pounds perhaps. The wound in her throat was smooth and deep, a circle the size of his fingertip. A delicate silver chain circled her neck. He lifted the locket in his fingers. It was shaped like a book, and he didn't have to open it to know it was a Bavis, and that inside it was probably a peer's prayers written on fragments of paper. Prayers for a long life, or perhaps for protection from the evil eye. A second shot had hit her in the chest, leaving a star-shaped stain. She looked as the dead always did to him now, frailer and somehow older than she was. Her makeup had faded, but her cheeks were still dusted with glitter. The film of creamy pink lining her lips was just visible under the rust-coloured stains around her mouth and chin. She had spluttered blood, which someone had tried to dab clean. Her skin was smooth, a childlike plumpness to her cheeks. It would tighten and shrink. She was dressed in a bright orange satin outfit, heavily embroidered with gold thread. She looked like the dolls Masarat bought from the local craft store for the servants' children at Eve. Cheap rag dolls, dressed like village brides. When he reached down to close her eyes, he felt the stiffness settling in the lids. After all these years, he was still struck by the stillness of death, as he noted the flutter of his eyelashes, the rise and fall of his chest. He reached for her arms and turned them over. No marks or wounds. How delicate her wrist was in his fingers. He patted her hand as if to comfort her, and he did want to comfort her somehow, because she was just a child, and she must have been terrified. Hi, Amina. Thank you for being here on an episode of Off the Page, and thank you so much for sharing an excerpt from your brand new Out in Stores Now novel. Return of Ferozali. So what you just read, in fact, is something that I remember seeing a version of many years ago in workshop. We were in the Stegner workshop together like six, seven years ago. And I know you were already working on this novel at that time. I can clearly remember that description of like the blood on the wall and the child's body and the story of this guy who had been born into the Mahala the red light district in Lahore and had been plucked from there as a child and, and given the opportunity to grow up in a sort of quote, normal civilian life, becomes an inspector and is then sent back to the place of his birth to cover up the murder of this child sex worker. And I remember that premise and how, and how incredibly intense and complex it was. And, and it's really cool to then see the far more complex and ambitious final result. 
I had no idea back then that the novel had this kind of like scope and scale and it's really, really fantastic. So, I mean, first question is just where, where did this start? How did this story start? And then how did it grow? Well, you know, you were saying that you had no idea it was going to, neither did I. I thought it was going to be, and I really set out with the agenda of writing something that was going to be this tight little noir story and very contained. I thought it would be an exploration of the world city and it would all be located there. But it was kind of one of the ways in which I guess stories grow as you kind of get deeper and deeper into a project where, you know, I was telling the story of this man who's been returned to this neighborhood. And, you know, a lot of what happens in this neighborhood is about inheritance because the women in the neighborhood pass down their professions as courtesans, as sex workers to their daughters. And it was almost impossible to to kind of tell a story about this inheritance without thinking about his inheritance and thinking about his past and his parents and their journeys. And so actually the story just kind of grew and grew. I hadn't realized, you know, some of the book takes place during the Second World War and some of it moves into the future, into 1971 and the breakup of Pakistan and Bangladesh. And again, neither of those were things that I had planned at the outset. But I think it's like that process of discovery as you start writing, you start writing towards other things that interest you and other questions. And because I had chosen to set the book at this very particular historical moment, it was very difficult to understand this history without looking back and without going further back and understanding, you know, we are here where we are right now because of what happened before, just as Faraz is here right now in the story because of the things that have happened in the past. So an unplanned foray (laughs) that became this kind of gigantic thing. But it was really satisfying, I think, to not really know and to kind of allow the story to take you to those places that were surprises, you know, along the way. Yeah, I mean, I, as, you know, an American reader, feel like I got a big sense of several important history. I mean, I'm sure just a, a drop in the bucket, but several very important historical moments in the history of Pakistan that I did not know about. I didn't even really think about the fact that, oh, there might have been Pakistani soldiers fighting for the British in World War II and what that would have meant or felt like. And I think it's really amazing the way that this novel intertwines this noir mystery plot with this larger storyline. Since we just heard an excerpt about murder and, and investigation, like to start with that, what to you as a writer is compelling about crime narrative as a way into talking about other issues? I mean, I think I've always been a big crime fiction fan. So it was definitely something I grew up reading. And also, you know, I grew up in a quite a television friendly household. And it is such a, you know, a kind of quite a tired trope in television, the mystery around the body that's been found. So it felt kind of familiar territory in that sense. And like I said, I was a big reader and enthusiast of crime fiction, but there were also things about crime fiction that frustrated me and certain things that I found myself resisting. And I was very drawn to the idea of writing a crime story. I loved the noirs written by kind of Raymond Chandler and Patricia Highsmith. I liked that kind of tight plotting that they had. Those were all things that were really compelling. But I also knew that there were certain things I really didn't want to do. 
if I was telling a crime story. There's a kind of Hitchcockian idea of like the MacGuffin, which is a sleight of hand thing where you kind of say to the audience, I'm going to tell you a crime story, come see my crime story. But actually it's really a ruse because you really want to tell another story. There was part of me that was doing that, you know, from a craft point of view of, I know this, the, the, the kind of seductive quality of the crime story and the mystery, the who done it or the how done it or the why done it. All of those things appeal to me as a reader. And I know I'm quick to get into those kinds of stories, but I knew that I didn't want to be just kind of constrained by what felt at times quite formulaic in, in certain ways. And I wanted to be able to range around and see what the kind of genre could do for me and how I could use it, but without being kind of really beholden to some of those frameworks that you find in, in crime fiction. I think the exciting thing for me was this idea of using a genre and playing with it. The difficult thing for certain readers will be that, you know, they have certain expectations and you slightly lead them up the garden path <laughs> and uh, you don't always meet those expectations in the way that they're thinking, but I'm hoping that they will get other things from the story along the way. Well, and with regards to sort of the mystery aspect, I feel like you both fulfill and challenge the reader's expectations of that genre. It's not like an Antonioni movie where you never know anything that happened. It all just like drops off a gnomic cliff. It's not, <laughs> it's not that frustrating. But I think one of the things, and I guess there's probably a distinction to be made between like a noir story and, a, and an actual like detective fiction mystery. I mean, they're related, but perhaps separate genres. And I think that one of the things that noir is good at is portraying corruption which I think this book is obviously very interested in. I mean, and in some ways for us is this very iconic noir hero in that he's up against this immense wall of corruption and this immense feeling of like the lives of these people in this part of the city are not important and it doesn't matter what happened or who did it. Here's the official narrative, go along with it. And his refusal to do that is, is what creates, you know, the narrative. And that feels very much like a classic mm -hmm. Jack Nicholson in Chinatown kind of narrative. Like, you know, I'm the one person who's going to be a cog in the machine. That's a really interesting comparison. I think that's true. And, I, and it's funny, those, those 70s noirs, especially those movies, I think about them quite a lot, actually. It was Chinatown or The Conversation and the sense of conspiracy that you get in those stories and somebody who's resisting them. I think the thing about Faraz is that Faraz Ali is also, he's not a great hero in many ways as well. Like he himself has a pretty soft moral center. The book opens the very first chapter, we see him beating a protester in a riot. And he, he does agree to go cover up the crime before he knows what it is, because that is part of his job. And I think one of the things that interested me about him was the fact that he really is a tool of the state and he has really represented kind of the oppressive power of the state for a long time. But this moment is one of those moments that kind of shakes him out of that somewhat, you know, where you have a, a moment of pause of like, am I going to go, you know, as far as people are asking me to go? And, you know, and I think, in fact, my feelings towards Faraz really changed because I think I felt pretty hostile towards him as a character because of that at the beginning. But I did come to see, I think, the more I wrote him and the more I thought about this kind of moral dilemma that he's in was, you know, he is like everybody kind of trapped by the same system. And being a tool of the state, it offers you a great deal of 
self-protection and self-preservation. Because if you're part of it, then you are less vulnerable to it. Also, you know, the work that he does and following orders and doing what he's told by all these people who are higher up than him and so, you know, blatantly corrupt is a means to kind of social mobility that as a man of his background, he just doesn't have. So, you know, I, I think that's another kind of aspect of the noir hero as well. The noir hero often feels pretty trapped as well in their own ways, just as they are by the kind of circumstances in which they're in. Well, you know, in that way, and I don't know if this would be considered noir, but the book also, to choose another non-literary example, reminded me a bit of a show like The Wire in that people are tools of the state and everybody is very much sort of trapped by their position in this sort of vast network of power and and corruption and that really limits their ability to make ethical choices that's a really great comparison as well i think i think because that show i mean one of the things that i thought was really interesting about it is because it's it's really interested in how the the relationship between the individual and the institution is really complex and how difficult it is to be an individual and to act individually in the face of an institution that you serve. And I think that's exactly the situation that Faraz is in, where the power of the institutions around you determine what you are supposed to do. And there is a set narrative and everybody is supposed to play their part. And it's pretty difficult to break out of that and to be the person who says, no, I'm not going to, I'm not going to do the job that I'm supposed to be doing. And I think that in the excerpt you just read, you know, we see the beginning of that resistance. And and in this excerpt, it's sort of connected to having a young daughter and then seeing, of course, this young girl who's been killed. And it's also, of course, connected to his understanding that this is his birthplace, this part of the city, the Mahala. And these are his people, although nobody knows that. And so I feel like in this book, He's also on a search for identity and a sense of belonging that also drives him to be this stubbornly honest person at times. Not always, but but increasingly over the course of the book. I don't know if this is maybe too much of an overreach as a question, but since I was thinking, you know, since the book does take on so much historical subject matter, and particularly World War II and then the Bangladesh Liberation War, I mean, I'm curious to the extent that you see a character like Faraz and also the character of his his father, Wajid, to what extent do you see their journeys in this novel and their characters as being emblematic of currents or themes that you see in post-colonial Pakistan? You know, in the way that all I can think of is non-literary examples, but like in The Godfather, you know, the Corleone family are telling you things about the American dream and capitalism. And I was really struck by a line late in the novel, where Faraz thinks, what did it mean to be a country when your army killed its own people? Did the people not belong to the country or did the army not belong to it? And I feel like in that moment, I'm seeing that like this the struggle of these two men, father and son, as being connected to like the project of starting a nation, really. Yeah, I think I think that's a really interesting question. And I, I think I do see both those journeys as like very interrelated and connected. Parallel journeys, really. You know, Wajid is, is very shaped by colonialism and his thinking and his ideas of how hierarchy works. So to me, both those men have this kind of parallel journey through, throughout the book. And Wajid, Wajid really is shaped by colonialism in the sense that he's grown up around it. 
He has spent his life kind of answering to its call in one way or another. And although, you know, he becomes part of a free nation eventually, I think his mind remains really colonized and really stuck in those modes of status and hierarchy. And you see the same thing kind of translate downward, you know, he always thinks he's acting in Faraz's good for his well-being, but of course he's oppressive and tyrannical in the way that that manifests. And Faraz is incredibly limited as a result of that. So I see their journeys as very similar in that way. And you're right, kind of emblematic of, in a sense, of the many sort of faces of Pakistan's own history. You know, what we see in 1971 is the Bangladesh Liberation War happens as well, is a kind of a repeat of colonial behavior. And effectively, I think I was really interested in this question of like, you know, you find yourself free as a nation, but it doesn't take long for the nation's masters to find others to oppress within that kind of landscape, within that context. And Faraz is once again a tool of that colonialism even if he has no memory of, of that pre-colonial period, it kind of haunts the book, haunts the characters. And I think there is a sense of kind of malignant inheritance that has kind of been passed down through the generations. And that that colonial legacy is part of Pakistan's inheritance and, and South Asia's inheritance and one that it will continue to battle. I think I wrote this partly because I felt it hadn't gone. You know, we talk about post-colonial, which makes it sound like it's happened, it's gone, but actually its shadow just kind of looms over everything now still in so many ways. Right. Yeah. You can't just press the button and like, okay, now everything's fine and history is wiped clean. And I think on so many levels, both personal and cultural, you know, as you said, this novel is engaged with inheritance and history and how that shapes subsequent generations. I also felt, and this is another interpretation I'm throwing out there, that the way you thought about the Mahala or the way the book thought about, you know, this ancient part of the city that has all this history that I'm going to actually ask you to talk about in a second, that contains the red light district with these courtesans. For instance, another line that stuck out to me is when someone says to Wajid, yes, his uncle says to him, we'll take you there and make an Indian of you yet, right? Because he's been very anglicized. So like the idea that this is a place that is the repository of real history, real culture, separate from colonialism, that seemed really powerful. I'm just curious if you could talk a little more about this area, the Mohalla, and like what it means culturally to you. Right. Yeah, sure. I think, uh, again, it's really interesting. And that area is really fascinating. And I mean, the, all of the walled city is very fascinating. It really is like a world within a world. And Shahi Mohalla which is a red light district, is, is one little section of the of the old walled city. And it has a very long and kind of ancient history. The work that the women did, they were known as the wives, which means they were courtesans, which meant that they were sex workers, but they were also kind of the center of a lot of cultural life. They were dancing girls. So dance, music, poetry, all of these things were kind of tied in with their work. And there was this kind of long history of performing for powerful people, for maharajas and emperors. And one of the things that happens with the British coming is that this kind of aspect of Indian culture is kind of relegated to kind of, well, it's just sex work. 
So they're kind of, they're relegated um, and they're moved around as well physically. Their working district is moved around over the over time. And I think that scene that you're referring to where he says we'll make an Indian out of you is because there was a, there was a lot of pride in, in the culture and that and the power of that culture that came from that district. Now, that's changed over the years. And I think as Pakistan has grown more conservative, there's been a kind of dismantling of that. And the women were initially trained in music and in very classical Indian dance. And over the years, it became much more Bollywoodized. It became much more accessible, much easier. And, you know, I think the view now is very different to what it was 100 years ago in the 1930s when it was a place where people wanted to be seen and where people went to have a good time, but without the kind of notoriety that it sort of had later on and has had. And that area is very much in decline now. And, you know, as with everything, the way people work in that industry has completely changed. But it was a real cultural center. And I think it's interesting to me that one of Urdu's first novel, which is called Amraujan Adha, was about a courtesan. The courtesan has a very particular place in South Asian cultural mythology. Right? I think there is a lot of romanticizing of the role of the courtesan. There are a lot of films about the courtesan and films that were kind of quite elevated as a result of kind of tra- the tragic story of the courtesan. And when I think of those films, you know, they're extravagant films, you know, the real costume dramas that are set in the kind of late 19th century or early 20th century. So there's this kind of regal splendor about them, which is so different to, I think, often the reality of the work and certainly the reality of, of what happened to that area over time. It was also fascinating to me the way that you sort of portray how that world, you know, just there's so much overlap between that and the entertainment industry. I mean, so another important character in the novel, of course, is Faraz's sister, Rosina, who prior to the novel had sort of transitioned from being a courtesan into being an actress of some renown. Although when we meet her, her career has already been in eclipse. But it, it was it's clear that there's this intertwining of, of, on the one hand, sex work, but also other, like, well, traditional dance and there are poets that are living in the district and then some of these young women become actresses in the film industry so and I feel like that's actually an international phenomenon if you look in the history of like lots of cultures you'll see those worlds have always sort of been been intertwining which is why I guess you know for so much of history telling your parents you want to be an actor an actress is is such a disgraceful thing (laughs) but I'm curious about how in the character of Rosina were you interested in actively maybe counteracting some of those romanticized courtesan narratives or just any narratives about about sex work yeah and one of the things about that area is that you're right it it basically it became and like this is true of like you say other places it became a pipeline for the movie industry so the most beautiful the most skilled would get kind of recruited and with being a movie star come a lot of things as wealth, there's status and fame, recognition. All of these things were ways to escape that world in many ways. But in many ways, I think a lot of those people also remained trapped in that world because in a conservative society, there is a sense that people know where you came from and what the work was or what the work your parents once did was. 
that kind of, again, kind of haunts you throughout that. And I was really fascinated by these women who had had really interesting careers in what is a very post-partition was a very, very small film industry. And I think what struck me about Rosina's story as a film actress was it is for a moment a kind of means of escape, but her existence is just as precarious as an artist in the film industry as it is as a sex worker. And and I thought that that was a parallel that really struck me about it, that there are very few ways for a woman in her position to achieve stability and financial independence. And she's constantly kind of, she, you know, she lives on the whims of others throughout, whether it's a movie-going audience or whether it's working in the mahalla or as a kept woman, which is kind of, how she finds herself at the beginning, kind of trying to build a life, but on this constantly shifting kind of sands that she's kind of stuck on as a woman in her situation. I think you asked me about romanticizing the courtesan. I think certainly, you know, um, what was interesting to me was growing up hearing about movie stars. And, you know, there is a kind of... uh, sensationalism that comes with conversation around them and a sense of their glamour but also what was interesting to me was the sense of disrepute that kind of stayed um and the fact that it's really hard to escape it in in pakistan which is still a very a society very entrenched in caste it's really difficult to get out no matter what job you do no matter where you end up or how much wealth you acquire it's something that that is very, very difficult to kind of escape. You know, something that I really found impressive about this book is that, you know, it's a work of historical fiction. And I think that so often now when we see narratives of another time and place, whether it's in film or television or, or in books, I think it seems increasingly common to sort of look at the past the lens of the present in a way to sort of maybe flatter the present day audience in order to say like, oh, people in the past were more like us than perhaps they really were. Or conversely, to like flatter the audience about how much more enlightened they are than the people in the past. And I think that in this book, for instance, when you're writing about the women in the Mohalla, and there's like maybe a gap there between most of the book's readership and sort of some of the morality you're portraying. And I think you're very true to like who these people were in this time and place. You don't apologize or comment on, but you write, I think, very much from the perspective of that time and place and the choices that were available to these women rather than filtering it through the sort of anachronistic 21st century Anglophone lens, which I think is very hard to do. Yeah, it is difficult to do that thing of not wearing your own contemporary judgment. But I think it's also that I was throughout the writing and even now I'm I'm so aware of how much those systems have just not changed. The places in which we are stuck now is because of the ways in which we haven't moved forward from those moments in the past. And I think particularly with the stories of women, I was just very conscious of that, you know, there are the women who are working in Shahi Mola as courtesans, but even someone like Faraz's wife, Masarab, who's a middle-class woman, has such limited options. There is no notion of a professional life or of being in charge of a household or responsible for a household. And so those limitations remain. And I've been thinking a lot about, you know, why do we write historical fiction? Like, what are we doing? What is its purpose? 
And I'm not sure that I have a great answer for it, but I think on a micro level, most of us are very attached to our memories or we understand their importance in terms of making us who we are. You know, you might be wanting to run from your past. You might embrace your past. You might be very proud of your legacy. And we understand that. And I think in a way, when you write historical fiction, you are trying to grapple with that same sense of importance, but on a kind of macro level of like, this is why it matters to talk about the past and to try and understand the past. I think that makes sense. I mean, I think writing about the past as a way to discover how systems, how behavior repeats, how we, whether as a, as a society or a culture or a country or a person, got to where we currently are. Yeah, I think the other thing is the erasures, right? And I think in this book, one of the things that was really difficult to write about was 1971, the War of Independence and Bangladesh's struggle for independence. That is a history that has been pretty much erased from Pakistani history. I mean, I think there are generations of young people who don't know about it. And I felt like at other times, you know, history is about understanding what happens, but also it's about kind of resisting silences as well and very deliberate silences. And in a way, even the history of the women in the book, it's again, the history of women and the history of women of particular castes. All these histories, are, they're multiple histories and they're all different histories. There is no one single story for any group. And it felt sort of important as I was trying to do this to be able to, to show that, that there are these kind of multiple stories and multiple histories and they all lean and press into one another, but they are different and they're all kind of worthy of attention. Off the Page is produced by the Stanford Storytelling Project and the Creative Writing Program. This episode was produced by Isabel Edgar and Megan Kalfas. Thanks to our production team, Destiny Cunningham, Carolyn Stein, and Tanvi Gupta. Thanks also to Jonah Willingans, Tiffany Naiman, and Melissa Durdle. Thanks to Patrick Phillips, Christina Ablaza, and Danielle Huliganga at the Creative Writing Program. For their generous support to the Stanford Storytelling Project, we'd like to thank the Vice Provost of Undergraduate Education, Stanford Arts, and Bruce Braden. Our theme music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. For more Stanford writing, author events, and workshops, visit creativewriting.stanford.edu and storytelling.stanford.edu. I'm Mark Lebowski. Thanks for listening. <laughs>